Last December, John and I were on tour. We were doing a little Advent run. And we weren't sure if it was going to be the last time that we were going to tour. Honestly, we both were tired. Um, it had been a long year, and we were questioning the future of our band. We were dropped by our record label because we were just headed in different directions. They were quite gracious to us. By the end of 2017, uh, we were working off some tour debt, as well as trying to figure out what was next steps and if we were even going to exist. And that night in December, our friend Mark Reddy came to a show and afterwards invited us for a meal. We went to this funny little tiki bar in downtown Chicago. And I remember sitting across from Mark and John and I just being completely honest and open and vulnerable, and there may have even been some tears, where we were trying to describe what we wanted the brilliance to be, but we weren't sure if it could continue to exist. And Mark that night looked at us and commissioned us and dared us to dream. What type of music would we make if we could make it? And that night he introduced us to a concept of continuing to make art that inspires empathy, that hopefully from that empathy inspires action. And he talked to us about what he was working on. My name is Mark Reddy. I am the Senior Vice President of Brand and Marketing for World Relief. World Relief is a global humanitarian organization. So one of the things that I love about World Relief's story is it started 70 years ago off the back of uh, World War One, and in particular, serving you know those who were displaced by that war effort and then we um, we've grown over the years to be what we call a global humanitarian organization but we work with local churches around the world specifically in Africa around global poverty alleviation community development but it's all done through the local church in the Middle East we do a lot of peace uh, work and in the US one of our key priorities is working with the uh, global migration movement as it comes into the U.S., a lot of uh, work with dreamers, a lot of work with those who are coming in seeking asylum at the border, and in particular, the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program. I asked Mark if he ever gets pushback because of this type of work, or if he gets accused of being partisan or being too political. Partisan or so too political. So there's a, um, a complex or a nuance to the question that you're asking. And one of the nuances is we're trying to make sure that our posture towards dreamers, towards immigrants in general in the U.S. isn't partisan. But we also think that it needs to be political because we think that there needs to be a legislative answer, in particular for this group that we're, you know, we're describing as dreamers, those who've come as children to the United States, the parents have brought them in, and they don't have legal status in the context of a pathway towards citizenship. But the Obama administration enacted a program called DACA, which is deferred action, essentially allowing um, those uh, children at the time and, and who are young adults and adults now to have a pathway to work, to have an education, to be part of getting bank loans, to buy houses and cars, and gives them just essentially a framework so they can uh, engage in the American uh, society more holistically. But Congress needs to provide a legislative answer for this. The Obama administration um, wasn't able to do this, and now the Trump administration has the opportunity to do something as well. And actually, there is general bipartisan support to providing an answer for uh, dreamers in particular, but it just gets kept getting kicked down the line because there is another political urgency or there is more compromise that's needed. But generally, the population generally seems to support this. There seems to be support even in the legislative area, and we think that there can be an answer in this space, but we need something to happen. And meanwhile, 800,000-odd people that would consider themselves dreamers have no real pathway towards 
um, any sort of guarantee as to their future. And, you know, deportations are, are happening. Um, there is uh, some people are losing their status to work. Some people are losing their status to have an education. And from day to day, there's just increasing sort of fear as to what's going to happen to me, what's going to happen to my family, what's going to happen to my, my brothers and sisters. Something really needs to change. And it's an ironic situation where there is an appetite for change, but there isn't the muscle within the legislature to make that change. And that's where I think we're stuck at the moment. We were moved. We wanted to make art that inspired empathy. And the story of Dreamers captured our imagination. We were commissioned that night to write a song for Dreamers. But before we would write anything, first we wanted to meet with some Dreamers and get proximate with our actual neighbors. So Mark introduced us to some Dreamers via email who live in New York. And honestly, it was quite humbling and inspiring. One of the Dreamers that we met for lunch told us his story. He explained that in high school, he was a member of the ROTC. And his dream was to become an officer in the military and then eventually a firefighter in New York City. His dream was to serve. We wanted to learn more, so I called up my friend John Huckins. Yeah, so my name is John Huckins, and I'm the co-founding director of Global Immersion. We're a peacemaking training organization who, who works primarily with, with people of faith to build tools to engage our divided world in restorative ways. And, um, and, and we can talk about the work as this goes on, but, but more significant, I think, to this conversation is my my community here in San Diego. I live just outside downtown San Diego in a neighborhood called Sherman Heights. And um, my wife and I moved down here just over eight years ago, and we have four little kiddos. And uh, our neighbors are primarily Latino. About 80% of our neighbors are Latino, and a high percentage of them are undocumented. And for me, I, I grew up in the central coast of California, so this was Agtown. I mean, I grew up in Salinas, California, which is known as the lettuce capital of the world. And um, I can remember growing up and seeing people working in the fields as I would drive to the beach or the golf course or my church or my school and back home, but I wouldn't actually see them. I wouldn't see the humanity and the dignity and the image of God in them. I certainly didn't understand their plight. I certainly didn't understand that they were picking the food that I would eat for dinner that night around my table. And so I grew up around a community who was deeply impacted by our country's policies and by the church's uh, blindness and, and apathy towards towards them, at least white evangelicals. And it wasn't until we moved here into this neighborhood that I began to see uh, see the humanity of this community. And it really came in the form of, of just relationships on our streets and in our community centers. And um, you know, one of the one of the women who is most close to my kids, who is like a second mom to my kids, is undocumented, and um, and what it's been like to be in relationship with her, real relationship. And you know, when when stuff is going on in our country, like the 2016 election, and she is so paralyzed and traumatized about what her future will hold. She has four kids that are all citizens, and she doesn't know what if she's going to be deported while they're at school the next day. And so she's around our dining room table talking about insurance policies and social security numbers and where do the kids go. And, and so as we just began to live on our streets and enter into these stories and began to confront some of our blindness, because we had inherited so many uh, blind spots in the theology and the politic that we had inherited that we weren't actually seeing the people um, right in front of us that were impacted by our complicity. And 
And, and additionally here, we're 15 minute drive to the border. And you know, San Diego, Tijuana is one metropolitan uh, context, is one metropolitan city. It is the, these two cities are totally interdependent from one another politically, socially, economically. And um, as we lived here longer and longer and began to see the connection, we began to build relationships across the border. And um, so now what that looks like is us being as present as we can in our own neighborhood with a community who's living in deep, deep trauma and fear right now, especially as um, San Diego specifically has had lots of ice raids and um, Border Patrol is very active because Border Patrol has a range of 100 miles north of the border and from each of our coasts. And so... San Diego and our neighbors are um, perpetually looking over their shoulder. We have to get proximate. We have to get close. Either the Brian Stevenson at the, the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery talks a lot about this in regards to race, but it, immigration totally involves race as well. It's not just political. We, we have to get proximate. We have to get close. We have to be in relationship with those who are impacted, or else we aren't going to care. There's too many things in our world, and it is too easy to get discouraged at the level of polarizing rhetoric and debate. And so who is that uh, that person on the underside of power, that immigrant who's hiding in the shadows of overcrowded apartments in your neighborhood who you need to actually get close with, get proximate with? And that could just be in your community center. It could be in your local, uh, you know, taqueria and coffee shop and um, whatever it might be, build some kind of relationship. Now, I would argue that the reason we have to care um, and the reason we don't care is out of a place of privilege. We don't care because it doesn't impact us. I, I love the definition of uh, privilege I recently heard, and, and it says it's simply the ability to walk away. If we say we are apathetic towards this reality, we're overwhelmed by it, so we walk away. That is a privilege because it doesn't impact us. But friends, it does impact us. Our communities are all totally interdependent with the immigrant reality. And if we are not engaged with it, our whole communities in the future for our kids is going to break down. It, my friend Noemi, who is um, a dreamer, she's undocumented, was brought here by her parents when she was two. No fault of her own. They brought her across the border illegally. She's here now, dynamic and academically brilliant, working three jobs to survive. I got a text from her a few weeks ago saying that her employers now having to cancel her employment because she cannot have verification of her status. And you have this dynamic woman who's now at home all day every day with no income and no opportunity. She can't drive. She can't work. These are people that are as a U.S. American as any of us. Oftentimes they're more uh, engaged socially than many of our youth today who need to have a seat at the table. And if they don't, we all are compromised. And uh, oftentimes we see like, well, if we, if we give a pathway to citizenship to these dreamers, it's going uh, it's gonna to compromise our resources. We see, have this mentality of scarcity rather than, no, this is actually a gift of abundance that we can receive. And so um, we have to care because it's a human reality and it's a reality of our streets, no matter what faith background we come from. We were moved and we started writing music. And what was originally meant to just be one song became eight different demos. From the start, we knew we wanted to collaborate with musicians whose lives have been directly affected by our current immigration policy. My name is Diana Gameros. I am a 
singer, songwriter, composer, music instructor. Que nada ni nadie piano teacher that we had in common back in Grand Rapids, um, Dr. Scanlon. He reached out to me and then we met up in San Francisco and then I came to New York and met David and worked on beautiful music together. Yeah, that's how our our musical relationship was born. I was born in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and I immigrated to the United States when I was 13 years old to go live with an aunt in Holland, Michigan. I moved there by myself. My parents stayed behind in Mexico. And uh, there was a period where I was able to go back and forth. But then um, 16 years ago in 2003, that's when I made the last trip to the United States and wasn't necessarily able to go back or if I went back to Mexico, I wasn't going to be able to return to the United States because of my immigration status. But for part of my life in the United States, I was an undocumented. I was an undocumented student. And um, to experience being an immigrant and also just hearing the stories of other immigrants whose stories were maybe of more struggle than mine. And so just having my own experiences mixed with the things that I would hear, the stories that I would hear from others inspired me to to make the music that I make, which is inspired by the immigrant journey. Also the politics behind it. wanting to invite people to open their minds and their hearts to the bigger picture of what being an immigrant is and the causes of migration and how we can be um, more welcoming and more understanding of people's circumstances that force them to migrate because a lot of the times this is forced migration. That was not necessarily my story, but I... I suppose I used my privilege because I think even within my own struggle as an immigrant, I had the fortune to, you know, I had many privileges. And so for me, it was important to honor the people whose struggles were um, greater than mine, to honor them, you know, through my, through my songs. And, you know, because I have the platform and I have the time to write about these stories, to sing about these stories, to share this message, to amplify their stories. And so I almost saw it as a, not a responsibility, but a, just a beautiful platform to, to talk about these issues and to talk about these people and their stories and their courage and their love. It's these stories of courage and love that inspired this suite. We 
don't want you to feel like we're trying to push you to one side of the aisle politically for any idea. In fact, we believe that no idea is above critique. But no person is below dignity. So we hope that as we engage with complex issues, we're always seeing the humanity in the other. And the stranger. And the person that might be on the opposite side of the aisle. Um, this is not a left or right issue. And when we just choose the binary, nothing gets done. And we just begin to demonize and dehumanize um, one another. And and, and who is lost in that when we just continue to yell at one another? The people on the underside of power. It's, again, a place of privilege to just yell our perspectives, and especially for white progressives. I think we can intellectually say, quote-unquote, the right things, when in reality our lives don't reflect any of that, and our friends and neighbors are continually being run over by broken systems. Um, so if this is not just a left or, or a right thing, and it requires that those of us uh, engaged in it, and this can be everyone on their own streets, are in relationship with everyone. I know for me on the border, I mean, I am in intimate relationship with um, migrants south of the border, especially in our, our shelters and um, with advocates, and I'm on the local Immigrants' Rights Consortium here. I am also in relationship with the Border Patrol chief, and he's a Christian, and he comes from his interpretation of the Christian faith manifesting itself in uh, abiding to law and order. And he sees his job as the Border Patrol chief as his faithful act. And so I meet with them every quarter. We have an open relationship that allows us to have hard conversations, and they are hard, and I'm unapologetic about the convictions, but we have to remain in relationship if we're going to get anything done. And so um, we, we can't see those on the other side of the political aisle as the enemy, but as a potential collaborator. And, uh, and, and if this is just a left issue, then we've missed the point because this is a human issue. Um, and if we're talking about uh, conservatism, I mean, th this is actually, and there's lots of statistics to prove this, the DACA Dreamer community are a huge economic asset to our country. But we don't choose to see that. We, we believe the myths that they're taking our money through healthcare and through education and food stamps. We just have to be students of this and understand that those myths are actually not true. And in the cases where that is happening, there's ways that we can understand it that makes sense of things. And so I think there's a, a beautiful invitation for collaboration and opportunity, but it requires, and this is the work that I do, that we actually be peacemakers. We see the humanity and the dignity and the image of God, even in our political foe, if you will, um, and, and allow uh, our, our relationship to move us forward rather than our political platform. started this conversation with you David and with John was that we we feel that the issue of DACA or the issue around dreamers and immigration in general gets buried right there's so many news hits every day there's a uh, you know an insatiable appetite for all the craziness of media and attention around politics and we we feel that we just need to make sure that people are paying attention to dreamers to the immigration issue more generally 
And the only way that um, our legislators are going to pay attention is if we contact them. If you phone your congressperson, your representative, your senator, even at a local level, even at a state-based level, and make it known that you are in support for action towards um, legislation that supports dreamers, a pathway towards citizenship, a pathway towards making sure that they have a, a legislative process, a law that gives them the ability to stay, to work, to live, to earn, to go to school, that it's not just in the um, executive action that provides a band-aid solution, but that there is a law that provides a long-term answer to this. Hey friends, John here. I'm going to take us on a quick tour of the album and discuss the music briefly with you all. What you just heard was the first song of the suite, Welcome to the Darkness. This piece, along with the second, called Stranger, explore the central riddle of the work. The immigration crisis happening all over the world and the difficult problems it demands us to confront. As old as the world is, the struggle is. As long as the struggle lives, the world. In addition to five songs are a set of piano pieces, three dreams. These pieces take my imagination to the Sonoran Desert. Countless migrants disappear there every year. erased by nature. What were their lost dreams? two songs remind me how, fundamentally, our dreams, our destinies are bound to each other. We're on this trip together, whether we like it or not. And of course, the title track, O Dreamer, our anthem for the DACA dreamers. We recorded four different versions and included two in this set of music. One features our friend, Diana Gameros. Does love have an open door? And the other, produced by Wilderman. Welcome, stranger. Give us your tired Great new record out. Teach us to dream again. We wanna see 
Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the album when it releases on all streaming platforms November 9th. If you can't wait, we want to invite you to become a partner with us through Patreon. To learn more, just visit patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search The Brilliance. Thank you so much for listening. Here's one more word from Mark. If you're interested in supporting World Relief, there are you know, many ways to, to give, from an advocacy action to participating with how you can uh, mobilize online, uh, mobilizing your friends and your community. I mean, I'm really interested in, in this sort of creative approach with, with Brilliance and the song Dreamer, um, because what we want to do is say, hey, share this song. Share this with your friends and family. Share this in a season that we're going into now that can either be Thanksgiving or the season ahead and say, hey, this is just a really creative way for me to say, pay attention to this issue. And then if you want to give to World Relief, give to World Relief. But more importantly, embrace the issue in the communities and the networks that you're in. Elevate it. Talk about it. Support those who you know that are um, vulnerable in this situation. Um, Educate those who you think need to be educated on these issues. Use your voice. This is David. I'm excited to announce that this spring we are going on tour. The Brilliance and Gunger, the end of the world tour. We're going to be going to Holland, Michigan, Chicago, Illinois, Atlanta, Georgia, Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to be going all throughout Texas, places like Austin, San Antonio, Houston, Waco, and Dallas. If you want to follow us on Twitter or on Instagram or on Facebook, or the best thing is to probably sign up for our newsletter, which you can do on our website, where you can also find tour dates. That will keep you up to date with all of our releases as well as announcements for this spring. We also want to give a special thanks to all of our patrons on Patreon. We want to create art that inspires empathy and action, and we actually need your help. Our patrons are our biggest support. So if you're interested in joining our team and being on our record label, that's our Patreon. You can check that out on our website, thebrilliancemusic.com.